Good morning. I'm just standing here a long time, aren't I? I know y'all are going, hey, when's he going to talk? He's been up there a while. Um, my name is Jamie. Uh, for those of you that are visiting, I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to see you this morning. Uh, we are, we have been going through a, a series on the seven churches in Revelation. Today is the last church there, Laodicea. Um, I hope you've been challenged or you've enjoyed this series. It has certainly uh, challenged me and today will be no different. Um, if you are new here, I want to point out that the seven churches that the book of Revelation um, was not written uh, sometimes as you receive it, as you, you, we think about it. It was not written as a secret code so that we would know when the end of the world was coming or what it was going to look like when it got there. It was written to Christians that were living in the first century that were undergoing great persecution, right? And it was intensity. And, and, and it depended on, you know, which way, how are they going to respond to that? Are they going to be faithful to Jesus or are they going to compromise? And so the, the letter was written to address this. And it did that by offering a look to the victorious Christ, the exalted Jesus. That's the purpose of the letter of Revelation. So today in, in Laodicea, um, this is the last church that's on the road uh, of Revelation. And it's so many sermons have been preached on Laodicea. And so what I'm hoping today is maybe we can do a little bit of deconstruction. In other words, um, take what you know and just kind of set it in front of you and see if that's what the Word says and not what you just kind of grew up hearing. I have to do that for myself too. And t- this was... This is quite something to study because it's not what I was really used to hearing um, from when I was studying this. So measure that. Measure that in, in your minds and have, have just be thinking about it. Um, opening illustration, I don't know. I, I've got four children, and when Christmas comes around or birthdays come around, and when they were young, say maybe two years old and three years old, if you're familiar, if you don't have kids and, and you know how children are, you buy gifts for them, you give them this amazing gift. Uh, we spent, especially with our first child, we didn't really care so much after the others, right? But, <laughs> you know, you're really a good parent with your first child, and everybody else is just whatever. You know, I'm tired. But um, you, like, get a gift, and it's like, man, I really put some thought into this, and we've really kind of researched and done all this. And, and it's, you know, about this big, you know, the, the present. Maybe it's a little thing for them to ride on or some mirrors and, and things. And uh, you give, they open the, the present, and, the, you know, two-year-old's just ripping the, pay, the, the paper off and the, the ribbon and, all that, and then, you know, they take it out of the box, and then they, they look at the gift, and then they turn back to the box and play with the box, right? Isn't, isn't that pretty common? That's not, they, they play with the box, and they have more joy out of playing with the box, and they do the thing that costs money, that took time and energy, and I know who you are and what you would like, and they like the box. Here's the point. We love the wrong things. It happens, and we don't even realize it, and we settle for the shadow of eternity when the real thing is to be had. That, that's kind of the, the point. We're going to come back to that. And so this week at Laodicea, I want us to look through a medical lens. All right? Why? Because there is a disease process in this church. There are symptoms that are caused by a disease that are in dire need of medicine. So number one is the symptoms, number two is the disease, number three is the medicine that Jesus brings. Number one, the symptoms. Verse 15. Let's just jump in right there. He says, I know, and I'm going to jump back to 14, don't worry, I'm not going to leave it. I know your works. Jesus is speaking directly to the church. I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. 
or, or cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That should be terrifying to start with, right? Let's just, well, this is hard scripture. Yes, it is. Now, traditionally, the way that this is taught, and I think the intent behind it is very, very good. It's what I kind of learned growing up. But traditionally what is taught is to have a half-hearted commitment to Jesus. Like if you're cold or if you're hot and you're not, then this is what you are. You kind of have this half-hearted commitment. You're kind of one foot in, one foot out. Nyeh. You know, you're not hot, which is to be on fire for God. And you're not even cold, which is to be against God. You're just kind of walking in between. You're a nominal Christian. And God likes that even less than being cold. So make up your mind. Figure it out. Pick yourself up. Go, go, go. We got stuff to do, right? That, that was kind of what I, I kind of grew up hearing. And, and I, I appreciate that. I don't want anybody just kind of be walking in between to be a nominal Christian. Nobody is okaying that. Is that what's really going on here? I don't think so. Well, why would you say that? Well, it makes either extreme a positive thing to be hot or to be cold. Don't, don't be, you're neither one of those. I want you to be something, like, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. I can't see God desiring anyone to be farther from Him if He sent His only Son to die and to save the world. John 3.16, we, we know the verse. And so another view is one that delves into the history and the geography of the area a little bit more. It's one that I think that the Laodicean people would resonate with. It would really strike home and jolt them, which is what they need. See, Laodicea was about 10 miles away from the city of Colossae, if you know the book of Colossians. And it was a little bit farther from the city of Hierapolis. And why is that important? Because the water metaphor that Jesus is using is very unique to this region. There, in Hierapolis, there are hot springs. And the hot springs were known for having this medicinal healing effect. And then in Colossae, they were known for having very cold waters, purified waters that were known for being refreshing and life-giving. So you've got hot waters from one place, cold waters from another place. Known throughout the region, Jesus is speaking their language when he speaks to them in the middle. And Laodicea did not have any natural water that was there. It had to be piped in. They used an aqueduct. To bring that in. This is Roman times, right? So, you know, an aqueduct is kind of like this stone pipe that, that goes from one city to the other and it just pipes in water to places that didn't have it so that a city could exist. But by the time the water got there, what we read in history, and you can find this in multiple accounts, even Wikipedia, right? Even Wikipedia. Um, by the time it got there, it's no longer hot from the hot place. It's no longer cold from the cold place. And because of the stone it ran through, it's full of calcium deposits. And so it's lukewarm, full of mineral deposits, and it will make you vomit at some point. That was, that's the his, history behind it. Sometimes it's foul enough to make people vomit. And if, if you read the Bible, what it says when Jesus says it makes you sick, I'm going to spit you out. The word for spit is vomit. They just didn't want to put that in there for some reason. I can see why. Water is supposed to bring physical life to the city. But it has the effect of making the citizens sick. The church is having the same effect on Jesus. He says, I'll spit you out of my mouth. I'll vomit you out. The church is represented by the water. The church is lukewarm, 
like the water is to the city. And the church should be doing what water is supposed to do. It's supposed to be bringing good news, the water of the gospel, and have either a medicinal effect like hot water or a life-giving, refreshing effect like cold water to the city around them. That's the purpose. And Jesus is saying the city's effect, the church's effect on the city isn't what it is supposed to be. And so the whole context of the book of Revelation, remember the forest for the sea, the forest for the trees, is the gospel is going to the whole world. That's the book of Revelation. We see this whole picture of the gospel going to the whole world, witness going follow uh, forward, following the example of Jesus who lays down his life for his enemies. That's how he conquers them. And that's what makes sense here. The church is supposed to be doing the same, learning and knowing their enemies and serving them and laying their lives down for them, but they're not doing that. And so they're blending in with the culture instead. And so the symptom of lukewarmness in living out the implications of the gospel or, or being faithful to Jesus in their culture by how they live, I mean, we, we know that they may, they may know the truth, they may know it in their heads, but it's not being impacting, it's not impacting their lives. It's not impacting the lives of those that are, are around them. This, this book is not written to hypocrites. I've heard that. Oh, these are hypocrites. No, hypocrites know what to do and do something else. They say one thing and do another. These people are living like they believe they're supposed to be living. That, that's different than being a hypocrite. They understand it. And maybe some false teaching has gotten in because if you look at the end of the book of Colossians in Colossians 4, even to uh, verse 1, but Colossians 4 at the end, G, uh, when, when Paul is talking, he's saying, hey, when you finish reading the letter here, take it to Laodicea and read it there because they need to hear it. And then he wrote a letter to Laodicea that's been lost, which probably says the same thing because it's talking about Jesus and him being uh, exalted and him being not created, right? That's why he writes that in verse uh, 14 there. The church is supposed to be salt and light, a city on a hill. And instead, they've taken the light and they put it under a basket, which Jesus says in Matthew 5, don't do that. That Nobody does that. Nobody takes a light and puts it under a basket. But that's what you're doing. Don't. Salt is a preservative. It's supposed to go in and bring stability and, 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 and it's supposed to preserve meat from rotting. It's supposed to keep that from getting worse. And so we go into the city and and the rotting places and we're like salt and we're like bringing healing and restoration and preserving life. And we're supposed to be like light. We go into dark places and we illuminate that and we cause things to grow and to flourish. That's what light does, sunlight. There's no electricity back then. That's the only light there was, right? Or some fire, right? It brings light. It, It pushes darkness out. And so this is what the gospel does. And this is what churches should provide to a city, even during persecution. That's the point. Even during persecution. And if a city should miss a church, even if the city is totally secular, a city should miss a church if it no longer exists. If the church loves the city well. I hope that makes sense. That's why we want to learn how to love Athens well. That's why we hang out in laundromats on weekends and we leverage the ball fields with our kids and we build ramps in underserved areas. And some of you may be called to move into areas. Oh, well, that's not safe. I'm not, I don't remember where we were called to be safe. I remember where we were called to follow Jesus unto death. But we don't preach that. 
because it's not convenient. And it's a little scary, and it's a hard conversation. I get that. I have a family to take care of. I understand. That doesn't mean we don't need to talk about it, and we don't need to wrestle with it, and we don't need to ask Jesus. Because either we believe this, or we don't. Right? Let's at least wrestle with it. That's what Christians do. We move into areas where salt to get to know our neighbors and share Jesus simply by living and being who we are. You don't have to be a great preacher. In fact, most of us aren't, including myself. This is just not what's happening in Laodicea. It's not happening. And that's why Jesus introduces himself in verse 14, back up a verse, as the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness. You're not, I am. Here's who I am. Because who he is always speaks to the problem we have. Every time you see it in every church, if you'll watch, as you've seen, we've gone through every church. He's like, here's who I am. Here's what you need. Here's your problem. Here's who I am. Here's what you need. Laodicea was not being faithful and not being a true witness. But Jesus is the sovereign ruler who brought about the origin of the universe. doesn't mean he's a created being there. He's here to address them. So what are these symptoms of lukewarmness and apathy. Where do they come from? All right, well, if you know, every symptom has a source. And so number two, the disease, right? Um, it seems the disease, according to Scripture, comes from two sources. Number one, self-sufficiency. Number two, self-deception. That's what we're looking at. Now, I'm a physical therapist, right? So um, I know a lot about back pain. Actually, I have some right now because I was working in my attic <laughs> this week. And um, if you have leg pain right here and run down to the back of your leg and there's nothing on your leg that hurts at all, you don't understand where that came from, that could be coming from your back. Right? You could have a disc problem. You could have something with your nerve in your back, but it shows up only in your leg. And, and your doctor says, well, you have a, a back problem. And you're like, you're crazy. My leg hurts. Well, what we know from medicine and where the nerves go is that the source is from the back. The symptom shows up in your leg. And so to make the leg better, you treat your back, all right? That's what's going on here. These symptoms are just kind of showing up, and, and they're lukewarm. Well, let's work backwards. Let's retrofit and figure out where that's coming from. Well, number one, self-sufficiency. Look at verse 17. Jesus says, you say, I'm rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, that's another pretty heavy statement, right? I mean, at this point, nobody wants to be Laodicea. I mean, nobody, if, if you're thinking straight. But let's do a little bit more history and geography again, one more time. This, this is a little, little study heavy. I, I, I get that. Laodicea was known as a banking center, like an, an economic hub for the region. The gold was exchanged in high volumes there, um, and as a result, the people were wealthy. This is a wealthy area. In fact, the city was so wealthy. You know, we've talked about uh, earthquakes several times. But in AD 60, there was a big earthquake there. This was written in, you know, mid-90s, right? So an earthquake in, in AD 60 occurred. And usually the, the Roman government, you know, this was Nero at the time, would come in and they would provide aid. And they'd erect the pillars again and put the emperor's name on the pillar so that you know this is Rome. This is what the city of Laodicea said. We're good. We don't need your help. We'll take care of it. FEMA, we're good. We don't need your help. We'll take care of it. In fact, we don't even want your help. We want to do it our way, hands off. 
We got, that's kind of what's happening in AD 60. This is a wealthy city able to take care of themselves, totally self-sufficient. They declined any help. They're also a textile town. If you don't know what textiles are, uh, that's cotton, right? Making clothing, material. And they were especially famous for this shiny black wool that was a cash cow for the region. It's all kinds of retail clothes and materials came out adding to their wealth. Uh, finally, there was a medical school there. And they were known in the region for producing, strangely enough, this eye salve for, for your eyeball. There was a, 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 like uh, several opth- ophthalmologists or optometrists. I'm not sure what you called them back then. You know, they, they didn't have like, you know, accreditation and stuff, right? But there were doctors that were very specialized at the medical school for eyes. That's why Jesus says what he says. They're going to listen to what Jesus says and perk up. It's going to be a jolt. And so the, the church is in an area that is thriving economically and is proving dangerous to their souls and to their church's existence. Maybe they thought their healthy spiritual welfare was indicated by their economic prosperity. Well, we're doing so good over here. We must be healthy spiritually. Because God always honors what, you know, and that's kind of the process. Not true. Look at the church at Smyrna. Do you remember Smyrna, who was going to prison and who was being persecuted unto death? And Jesus was like, just hold fast, you're doing great. See, Smyrna was materially poor, but spiritually rich, according to Jesus. Laodicea was materially rich, but spiritually poor. The exact opposite of the church at Smyrna. And this greatly concerns Jesus. And so what we learn is there seems to be a direct link between prosperity and spirituality. There's a, there's a link there, right? That's what we're, we're seeing. And what does Jesus say about the, young, the rich young ruler in Matthew 19? He says, and this is about him talking to the disciples. He says, truly, I say to you, disciples, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not impossible. With all things, with God, all things are possible. But it's going to be difficult. The link is need. The link is dependency. The link is self-sufficiency or lack thereof, right? When you are at the top, you can say, I'm a sinner saved by grace. But it does not grip your heart. You don't have needs or they aren't big ones and comfort leads us not to trust Jesus, to trust ourselves. Those with less, those who have less materially, are more open to their need, and therefore usually more open to the gospel. That's just how that works. In Luke 12, we're told, be rich toward God. And it pushes it a little bit. It says, sell your possessions. Wait, hold on. <laughs> You're overstating with hyperbole there. Now, I'm just telling you what he says. i got to live in this world too. I'm right next to you, Right? Luke 12, and push to verse 29. Do not seek what you are about to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. Okay. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these will be added to you. So that's what, that comes in second. Fear not, little flock. So he's speaking uh, just here, here, flock, as a shepherd. For it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. To give you the kingdom, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. 
For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus says we are to seek his kingdom, not riches. That our heart, wherever your heart is found, right? That your heart is found wherever your utmost desires are. That heart, our heart is set on what we really love. That's what our hearts are set on. If it's money, what we learn from that is we can't enter the kingdom of God. If our heart is set on money, it says you can't enter the kingdom of God. If getting money or having money is our focus, then we need to be awakened because the world is dangerously luring us in. Are you saying I can't have a boat or a lake house, Jamie? Here's the point. I'm not. What are you doing with it? Why do you have it? Where where, where did it come from? Wrestle with it. Deuteronomy 8 says that everything that which we're given, all the wealth in which we're given is from God. And so the question is, are we building our kingdom or are we building his, a part of what he's doing? Are we involved in what he is doing? We've got to revisit these questions, at least in our family, year after year. Because things change year after year. I'm like, oh, you know, did I get a raise or did, did, did am I paying for braces now? You know, it, what's changed in the budget to where I have a different amount coming in? And, and how do we leverage that for the kingdom? Or, or what, what do we need to do? I don't want to be content with living and giving just enough to appease my conscience, but not never, not ever giving as Jesus calls us. And so Jesus says, here's why he says, sell your possessions. Here's why he says that. He says, sell your possessions so you can show the world through your generosity that you have a greater treasure. That's why he says that. Because when, when you're, when you're generous, you're showing, I don't have to have all of this. I have a greater treasure. So this proves that. This is displaying the gospel. Not just studying it, but displaying it. You, you see that, you see the difference in the two. That's why we give. We can give away with joy because our treasure resides not in our bank accounts, but in heaven. And so our generosity reflects our trust in God. It doesn't mean you're unwise. It's about loving Jesus more than our stuff. And we know where we are when we look at our checkbooks. Here. This is where it goes. I know that that's where I was convicted. I'm like, there's where it goes. My wife and I, we need to sit down. Let's revisit this again. We're doing it again. It's about the heart. I used to be very stingy. I know it's hard to believe. Just look at my face. Right? But I was. I I had a lot of credit card debt. I had a lot of school debt. I was living by myself. I was sharing an apartment with this dude. And I mean, we would, I I like, our competition was to see how low can I get my electric bill. And so it would be like 60 degrees in the apartment. I would have a quilt wrapped around me. I would be eating SpaghettiOs cold in the pan with a fork. And my friend would walk in. He's like, dude, that's ridiculous. I mean, that's just a picture of your life. That's just sad, you know. And I'm like, okay, you know, you win, you know. And then I got married, right? And my wife, who is very good with money, had no debt, had none none of these issues. See, it's not about being rich. It's not about what you have. It's about what you want. And, and what she realized was, is because I hold, held on to anything, I never like paid for somebody else to have anything because uh, I wanted to be wise with my money. And so I would use the gospel as a cover for sin. And so what I would do is like, all right, we're going Dutch and you're going to pay and we'll split everything down the middle, make sure everything's even because I got a lot of bills to pay. And what, what she taught me was that's just simply not trusting the Lord. <laughs> it's not trusting him. It doesn't mean I don't need to be wise. 
But it was a trust issue for me because I could control my money. And it's not really about how much I had. It was about what I wanted, what I was doing with it, how I controlled everything, and how I was so ungenerous in the process. I mean, that was, how, many, how many years do I get to be ungenerous in the name of the Lord so that I can be generous? You know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, how, do, how do you do that? I don't know. It's hard. Are we revisiting those difficult conversations in our heart? Because it really is about the heart. You know, poor people can be greedy. It's not about being rich. It's about what you want more than what you have. And if your heart's for money, then you can't enter the kingdom. That's what Jesus is speaking to. It's about holding an open hand and being willing to give up what you have to follow Christ. You just walk around with an open hand to love him more than anything. If he takes it, blessed be the Lord. If he gives it, blessed be the Lord. In fact, it's not just money. It's the three T's, time, treasure, talent, right? It's about you can do this with time just as easily. In fact, I'm really good at doing that with time. I'm even better doing it with time than I am with my money because I'm, I'm trying to build my kingdom so much instead of his. As a parent, you can run your calendar so full and have so many activities for your kids that you don't have time for spiritual things, right? Uh, you know, I got, we got soccer and baseball and this and that. I don't, I'm really, I don't know if we have time for this spiritual stuff or I'm too tired for church or MC. We made it to practice this week, but I don't think I can make it to spend time in God's word with anybody. I mean, we'll get to that. I got my quiet time covered. Oh yeah, I forgot I was too tired, so I didn't make it. And so we just start dropping things and we don't mean to because what we'll say is, oh, it's just not a good season. We'll tell ourselves or, or Jesus wants my children to have every opportunity that I can get for them. Our family has to rethink that. Every ball season, I've got four children, two in baseball, two in soccer. It's two, it's two months long. And, and how do I work that into life and not let our children be the center of our family controlling everything, but yet let that be a small season where there's intentional gospel opportunities that we have, but it doesn't run us. Because you can, under the guise of trying to be a good parent, you can use the gospel as a cover for building your own kingdom. It's deceptive. I've done it. And half-hearted devotion, we've said this before, half-hearted devotion to Christ in one generation leads to full rebellion in the next. And our children see how we are committed to activities that trump our commitment to church, and it sends a powerful message. And so Jesus mentions specifically in verse 17 that they are poor. Look at that. Look at verse 17. That you are poor, blind, and naked. Wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And this strikes literally, literally at Laodicea. These are the three points that the city boasts in most and that they're trusting themselves in. Jesus says you're poor, which speaks to their banking industry. What do you mean we're poor? We, have a, we are the economic hub. You're not rich. You're poor. You're not rich in a way that lasts. Blind? Blind speaks to their eye salve industry. Right? You think you can see. You think you're healing all these people. You can't see reality, even though you have your own eye ointment. Naked speaks to their textile clothing industry. You aren't clothed. You've got nothing. You just think you are. In fact, everything that you think you are, you're not. That's a powerful statement. The level of self-deception and Laodicea is high, and it is in us as well. We cover ourselves. See the garments there? We cover ourselves. We hide our nakedness. 
which the Bible uses as a metaphor for shame, we know we're not what we should be. I'm not the parent I need to be. I'm not the husband I need to be. I'm not the spouse. I'm not, oh, I'm not the worker. I'm not the boss. I'm, I'm not what I should be, which is the definition of shame. Therefore, we cover ourselves or we clothe ourselves with success, with accomplishments, with beauty, with popularity, with being good at athletics, with somewhere to shine. Here, where do you really shine? Right? Good jobs, good schools, being the best parent, having the best family, whatever. We show that we can take care of ourselves. That's how we clothe ourselves. And we tell ourselves and we tell the world, I am enough. And the clothing provides some measure of satisfaction. It can distract us. It will blind us long enough to keep the cycle up, to keep the appearance up. But deep in our hearts, we know something's not right. We just can't put our finger on it. And we're temporarily satisfied. We're temporarily satisfied with the chase of some new promise of satisfaction, but we're never satisfied in the catch. It's always the chase. It's never the catch. When you get the catch, it's not what you thought it would be. Why? Because you were made for more than cardboard boxes. You were made for more than shadows of eternity. You were made for what's inside. You were made for the actual gift, not the container, not the reflection, not the shadow, not the immaterial. So how do we combat self-deception? How do we renounce self-sufficiency in a world that celebrates it? How can we be life-giving water for the world around us when we're not even aware that we're almost dead? What's the prescription? It's like it is every week. This is not new, people, right? It's third point, the medicine. Laodicea has no idea that they have a problem, and they're on the cusp of being spewed out of the mouth of God, and they believe that they are just fine. And this hits strikingly close to the home of the American church that I am part of and that I participate in and that I am blind in many times. And the church is blended in in Laodicea with the trade guilds and the culture, not to redeem it, but to become part of it. We are in the world, for the world, not of the world. You can't miss the middle. Okay, we're in the world for the world, not of the world. All three of those are important. We're not trying to be out of the world. We're not trying to be of the world. We're in the world for the world, not of the world. They can't see their blind spots and they desperately need to. They need a jolt. They need an injection of Christ's resurrection power. That's why Jesus is here. It's a stern warning. But look at verse 19. It's out of love and from grace. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have come at all. Just go on and do what you're going to do. I'm not, I'm just going to let you go. I'm just going to let you go. I don't let my kids continue to hurt themselves. You know, you drop a cinder block on your toe. Don't do that. Don't pick up cinder blocks and run around like you're strong enough to hold them, right? You're going to hurt yourself. Stop. Here's a rebuke. He disciplines those he loves. Hebrews 12, 
I'll give you the short version, five and six. We've got to move. My son, my daughter, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. How does the church see where it is not trusting God today? How do we see that? How do you see where you're following the world and desiring the things of the world? How do you see what you cannot see? Is another way to say that. Jesus gives the medicine for the internal disease that has not manifested itself yet. Church doesn't see it. They don't think they have a disease. They're not looking at the MRI. Verse 18, Jesus says, I counsel you or I prescribe to you. Buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. You need, church, you need to receive much from me. You're getting it other places and you think you're fine, but you need much from me, is what he's saying. First, that you have a problem. You need to own it, church. In fact, that you have a deadly disease that you're not aware of. You need my salve for your eyes. Because your salve isn't good enough. It doesn't see what needs to be seen. You can't see it. It's not good enough for the problem that you have. And, and, and in addition to that, you need to come to me, not only for the salve, but for white garments. Because the black wool clothes that you're using don't work. And they, they never will. I don't care how many times you change the brand or the style or it's a new uh, model that's coming out. Your shame can't be covered by you and your weak attempts. You can't do it. I don't care what you do. You need clothes from me to truly cover cover shame. And finally, you need to come to me for true gold. I want you to be rich, but not in a way that will destroy you and bring dishonor on my name. Your self-sufficiency is repugnant to me. That's what Jesus is saying. I love you, but you're very sick and I can see it and I can smell it and it needs to stop. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Be one-minded. See, one zealous there, or earnest means to see one thing, just one thing, and repent. Turn away. Just stop. Don't try to make up for it. Don't try to blame somebody. Don't find excuses for it. Own it, and then turn and come to me. I have everything you need. Turn away from the worthless pursuit of earthly gain to find real treasure. So he's saying, I want you to be rich. You think you are, but you're not. So look inside the cardboard box, right? And find the true gift instead of playing with the box. And when that happens, not only will you, will you finally walk in rest and satisfaction, church, you will not fear persecution or what people say or that they don't know you're crazy or you're not very smart because you believe that kind of stuff. You won't fear that. And you can be salt and you can be light in a city that I have put you for my glory. You can actually live in joy in that, in the midst of that. Your circumstances will no longer determine your attitude or your mood. 
And so Jesus wants to exchange the wretched, pitiable self-sufficiency that we've created to prove our worth and give us eternal, lasting, and truly worthy sufficiency that comes only from him through his death, burial, and resurrection. We don't earn it. We receive it. How? I like your theory. That's great, Jamie. How? All right. The medicine. The gospel. Everything you are in reality poor, blind, and naked before God was dealt with on the cross. Jesus left the riches of heaven to rescue us on earth. Second Corinthians. It says, Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that so that by his poverty you might become rich. Right out of the Bible. He wants us to be that kind of rich. He's willing to die to bring us into that. He was blindfolded and beaten on the way to the cross. And the guard said, if you're a prophet, tell us who hit you. Boom. You remember that? He was stripped of his clothes and other utter humiliation and made naked, laying and nailed to a piece of wood on display for the public as a loser and as a criminal. Poor, blind, naked. Jesus became those things so that you and I could be restored to God. He took what we deserved to give us what we must have to stand before the Father. It's the gospel. And because of his resurrection, he says in verse 20, I stand at the door of the church and knock. This is an invitation not for conversion, but for renewal. He's at the church. He's not in the church. He's outside it, knocking on the door. You only have to come and be open to his coming in. And he'll give you all that you need. We receive. That's how it works. We lay down our lives. This verse is not written to individuals where, where Jesus is sadly knocking on the door of your heart. That's the way I heard it preached. The Savior is waiting to enter your heart. Okay, why don't you let him come in? Poor Jesus. Nobody's letting him in. He's hungry out there. Let in the Savior. That's not the picture. It's a misrepresentation of what's happening. He is a conquering king in the book of Revelation. Why in the world would that, that visual just pop in our heads all of a sudden? That's why we have to have the whole, the whole book. He's a conquering king. He's a medical doctor with the only cure for the disease that is killing the church. And he's knocking at the door going, you want it? I got it. I got everything you need. Poor, blind, naked. Here's all the stuff. You just have to come to me because I'm a king. You're not. Come. It's what you need. I got everything that you need. So my question is, are you willing to be exposed? Are you willing to let him do life-saving surgery and bring healing medicine? If so, Jesus will respond to anyone. He's ready to receive. He promises intimacy. That's what the meal picture is. A close relationship with God. To sit with him on his throne because he's already conquered. We follow Jesus in everything and like him. By laying down our lives for others, we will conquer and reign with him. Let's pray together. We have three directives this morning. 
If you're new, just stay where you are and just read this. We're just going to pray. What makes you feel secure and comfortable? Pray that you can release that to Jesus and not love the wrong things, number one. Number two, pray about how to leverage the resources God has given you to advance his kingdom more than your own. And then finally, pray for all the churches in Athens to not be self-sufficient, including ours. This is a kingdom thing. This is not a church thing. You guys know we don't care about that. We want to see Jesus' name lifted in all the churches so that all the people will be joyous because of Jesus and nothing else. Pray that we'll not, we'll not, we will not be self-sufficient, but that we will be able to follow Jesus in all parts of the city with the gospel. Let's pray those things. Just spend maybe one, two minutes. I'm going to close us in prayer and then lead us into the Lord's Supper. If you want to keep praying, keep praying. And then we'll sing together. Let's pray.